Let's turn to the word of God, to our Bibles, and to the letter to the Hebrews, and chapter 10, going to read from verse 19 to verse 25, page 1210 in the Church Bibles. And the author to the Hebrews has just come to a great summing up, to a great summary and uh, explanation of what the gospel of life is. And he comes to this great conclusion in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let me read then from verse 19 to verse 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A new year is a milestone, a new decade even more so. It seems scarcely credible to some of us here of a certain age, that it's now the 2020s. It's actually the seventh decade in which I've lived, which makes me feel extremely old. Those were only the very tail end of my first decade of life, which was the 1960s. A new decade may bring many, many things. Great excitement and a sense of foreboding. A sense of opportunity and a sense of unknown, and even perhaps of fear. And there are many different circumstances represented here in all the families and individuals that make up this congregation this morning. And we live at times that are rapidly changing, nationally and internationally, globally, don't we? And that's why a new year and particularly a new decade, is an appropriate time above all times to come back to big, important, central, unchanging truths, to come to the solid rock of who we are as God's people, rather than the sinking sand of fluctuating and changing conditions. 
If you look at our passage this morning in Hebrews 10, maybe you notice, as I read it, that there are three lettuces. Three lettuces. If you want to think of a lettuce as a visual aid, that may help you. Okay? But there are three lettuces in verses 22 and 23 and 24. And I want to take these three as anchors, as things to hold on to, to take to heart, uh, to put into practice, to, to commit to our memories and our minds as we begin here at Grove Chapel in this year and in the 2020s. What is the first lettuce that we have? Well, it's in verse 22. Let's read it again. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And this is the lettuce of what God has done for us. We start with what God has done for us. Why do I say that? Because we can only draw near to God and find peace with God and fellowship with God and the forgiveness of God and the comfort of God and the presence of God on the basis of what God has done and done for us as his people. And in the earlier verses 19 to 21, we see exactly what it is that God has done. He has opened up that one way, that one route for us to come to him only through the unique and final work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest over the house of God. And that is the great theme of this letter to the Hebrews. What God has done for us in his son, Jesus. As you look at these verses, 19, 20, 21, and 22, do you notice that there is in them a kind of theme of, of movement, of, of traveling, of coming, of entering into, of approaching? These are dynamic verses. They're all about us coming to God, once being apart from him, once being away from him, but coming towards him. Why does this matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Sin, my sin and your sin, separates us from God. There are some castles you can go to in parts of Britain where the walls are six feet, eight feet, ten feet, twenty feet thick. Great stone walls, so broad, so thick. And what our sin does is causes a great thick stone wall to descend between us 
and God. When our first ancestors, who were not ape men or monkeys or single-celled organisms, but were one man and one woman, when they first sinned, they were banished from the Garden of Eden and they were driven out from the presence of God. That's when this separation started. And on that day, God placed at the entrance to that garden mighty angels with swords guarding the way so that no man, no woman, no boy or girl could go back into that garden and go back into the presence of God. Your sins and my sins have separated us from God. How can we come back? That is the great question of the whole Bible, isn't it? How can we come back to God? How can we find God? How can we know the peace of God, the love of God, the encouragement of God? Well, God, centuries later, chose his people, his people Israel. And he brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he showed them that there was a way back to himself. What did he do? He gave very precise instructions about a tent, a tabernacle, with a curtain, a veil, which separated that tent into two parts. And beyond that veil was the most holy place, the symbolic dwelling place of God himself. But only one man could go in there. And he only once a year. And he only carrying the blood of an animal sacrifice. The high priest on the annual day of atonement. But that was showing that there was, there was to be a way back to God. So what is this writer to the Hebrews saying? What's his wonderful message for us here this morning? It's this. That way is now fully opened through Jesus Christ whose death on the cross resulted in the tearing from top to bottom of that curtain of the temple for us to find a way back to God only through him. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. The old tabernacle, the old temple, the old high priest, the old sacrifices have to be done away with. The new high priest is Jesus. The new sacrifice is Jesus. The new tabernacle is the word who became flesh and tabernacled among us. And through him and him alone Sins are really, truly, actually, fully and finally taken away. And notice again what this writer says in verse 22. This is so precious to your soul and mind this morning. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let me apply this very specifically indeed. We all know what it is to experience an evil conscience. What is your conscience? It's that God-given faculty that you have and I have, which tells me whether I am doing what is right or doing what is wrong. Our consciences sometimes excuse us. Our consciences oftentimes accuse us. And we become painfully aware that we have sinned against God and against our fellow human beings. I speak to every one of you here. You all have a conscience. And you have all known what it is to have a guilty conscience, a bad conscience, what is called here an evil conscience. And here is the question. What can be done What can be done to cleanse my evil conscience and yours? What can wash away my sin and yours? Can I forget about it all? Can I just have fun? Can I drown my sorrows? Can I go on some course of therapy or some treatment that will help me to relieve my mind of a guilty conscience? And the answer is that none of these things will work. There is only one remedy. There is only one solution for your evil conscience that accuses you night and day. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. God. God, your creator. God, the sovereign Lord of the universe. In the gospel of his Son, in the only saving message in the whole world, tells us that we can find deliverance from an evil conscience, from the guilt of our sin, from the fear of condemnation, only here, but here, absolutely here, fully here, 100% here, in the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through his curtain, that is, through his flesh. Nothing else ever can or ever will cleanse your conscience but the blood of Jesus Christ. As you, hearing of the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ, apply that blood to your conscience and understand in the power of the Spirit, he paid for my sins. He bled and died for my guilt. He takes away my condemnation. I can't wash myself clean. Doesn't Job say in chapter 9 where he is plagued with all of his doubts and fears, What could I do? I could wash my hands with water from the melted snow of Mount Hermon and wash my whole body. It won't make me clean. I could put on a happy face and sing a merry song and pretend that all is well and that won't make me clean. That won't make me better. I could forget my troubles. That won't make me better. What can make me better? What can make me whole again? What can cleanse my evil conscience? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
But this morning, let me ask you a question. What if you are unsure? What if you are wobbly? What if you find this hard to believe or difficult to understand? It is God himself who says this to us. And so I come to our second lettuce, if you, if you like. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The first lettuce was the lettuce of what God has done for us. This is the lettuce of what God is like. This is the lettuce of the very character of God. Have you made a New Year's resolution? I gave up New Year's resolutions sometime at the end of the 20th century. Because I could never keep them. However hard I may try. Maybe you, like me, don't have much stickability. Or, or staying power. Or tenacity. Or resolve. You try and you think... What's the point? I can't keep this up. I don't have the willpower. I don't have the self-discipline. Or I just don't have the... Uh, I, I can't seem to stay stable. I, I waver. I, I wobble a great deal. I let so many people down. I, Of course, I let the Lord down all the time. So maybe when you look with me at verse 23 in the first few words, which I'll read again, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You feel like saying to yourself, oh, I could never do that. I go all wobbly at the knees like these Hebrews seem to do. Who ever has held fast the confession of their hope in God without wavering? Without wavering at all. Did King David manage that? We know he didn't. Did the Apostle Peter manage that? We know he didn't. Did the father of that boy with the evil spirit that Jesus had to cast out, who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, did he waver? Of course he did. We wavered plenty in 2019, and we will surely waver a whole lot more in 2020 and beyond. But what we need to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is what verse 23 goes on to say. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. This let us, does not rest on your faithfulness, nor mine, but on God's faithfulness. His faithful actions and his faithful words. He has acted, he has worked, he has done great things, and he has promised as the God who cannot lie and cannot contradict himself and cannot go back on his word. And it's his faithfulness that we hold on to now and forever. When I think of God's faithfulness to his people, I, 
I always have a picture in my mind of a small child, maybe about Greta's age or a bit older than Greta, three or four years of age, on a climbing frame in a park, just a few feet off the ground, but trying to come down, and her feet looking for the next rail down, and her hands rather shaky because she's frightened of falling, and she's trying to find a safe hold for her hands and her feet on this climbing frame in the park. And she's frightened and worried, will I be able to make my way down safely? But all the time, her dad is, or her mum is, behind her, underneath her, holding her, guiding her hands, guiding her feet, ready to catch her if she loses her grip. A faithful father is there. A good father is there. No human father will let their little child fall off a climbing frame, will they? And if we who are evil are like that with our children, to change the analogy slightly from Jesus' parable, how much more is our heavenly father? Are you in a desperately low condition at the moment, friend? Brother or sister, maybe you are. He who promised is faithful. That's what God is like. And he can't change. He cannot become more faithful and he won't become less faithful. Maybe that's what many of us need to learn and relearn this year. God is faithful. If he says to us that he has washed away our sins and cleansed our consciences by the blood of Jesus, then he means what he has said. He will do it. He has done it. And we can count on it. We can come to God with confidence, without fear or guilt or shame, because we have been invited and, and welcomed and beckoned and urged and drawn by the God who is faithful, who cannot lie or contradict what he has said. And let me say this as well. If we can count on God for the great things of life and eternity, such as the eternal security and salvation of our souls, how much more we can count on him for everything else that is lesser than that. What are you anxious about this year? What are you worried about in the weeks and months ahead? What are, you, what are you sensing? What are you grieving about? What are you fearful about? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give you everything? Such is his faithfulness. You're worried about health. You're worried about money. You're worried about domestic matters. You're worried about matters of, of work and so forth. The faithful God will never leave you. The everlasting arms are there to hold you through this year and every year and for all eternity. 
That's the second lettuce that we have, isn't it? The lettuce of the character of God, what our God is like. But I come to a third one. Verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Can I make a suggestion and recommendation to all who are here that we take these two verses, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, as our theme verses for this year, as a motto for this year, if you like. Let them appear on our website. Let them appear on our social media pages. Let them appear on our notice sheets every Sunday this year. Let them flash up on the screens before and after our services here on Sundays. Let us, to add another letters to it all, let us memorize these words, that we do them, and encourage one another to do them in this year ahead. I'll read them again. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Who are we all? What are we here for? We are the church of the living God. We are the assembly of God's called faithful saints. We are the living body of Jesus Christ. What do you think of when you hear the church described as the body of Christ? Doesn't it seem a confusing title in some ways? Surely the body of Christ is a real human physical body somewhere up in glory, isn't it? How are we the body of Christ? Well, here's a simple explanation of it. The church in every place, the worldwide church, and the individual local congregations are to demonstrate, are to shine forth the character of Jesus Christ to the watching world. If we are his followers, we are to be like him and to become more and more like him together. It says in Psalm 115 and Psalm Isaiah 44 that uh, those who worship foolish idols of wood and stone become like them. That is, if you worship an idol that has eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. If you worship an idol like that, you become more and more like that. But the reverse is gloriously true. If we, the body of Christ, worship the living Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth 
as we come together to do so, we together become more and more like him. And what was it that characterized the life of Jesus? Love and good works. He went about doing good. See how he loved Lazarus, they said. See how he loves even his enemies as he prays for them. See the good works of our Lord Jesus that come from his pure heart. See how his followers become more and more like him. See how the early church in its purity was full of love and good works because they were dwelling so close to Jesus in their corporate life. The love and good works of Christ are to overflow into our lives. But there's a particular application, isn't there, which is drawn here that is so very, very important. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's an old, old problem. Back in the first century AD, there was already a problem with some professing believers getting out of the habit of meeting together. We're not talking here about people that were too old or too young or too ill or people that of necessity for some urgent reason had to be somewhere else. We're talking here about people who take the decision that they would rather not meet with their fellow believers. They would rather be doing something else or nothing at all. And when believers try to go it alone, as you and I will have seen, when believers neglect meeting together and worshipping together, they become like coals. Can I say coals today in the 2020s in our modern environmental age? Well, I will anyway. They're like coals taken out of a hot fire, which cool down very quickly. They lose their heat, they lose their warmth, they lose their brightness, they lose their usefulness. We are useful. We are more like Christ when we are together with the body of Christ. How do believers stir each other up to love and good works? By meeting together, by being together, by seeing each other's faces and hearing each other's voices, by giving attention together to the same word of God, by drawing together of the same divine resources which we need to live and to thrive in dark days like our own. And finally, so see how the author in the last part of verse 25 mentions a particular day. A day that is drawing near. What is that day? Well, there's no doubt that as we read these words, we must see that day as the final day. The day of judgment. The last great day when every soul will appear before God. Every soul. 
This letter was written to a number of Jewish Christians who were in danger of giving up, of losing heart, even of some of them perhaps falling away altogether. And many of them, it seems, had already given up meeting together. They'd lost the desire. They'd lost the appetite. They couldn't be bothered. There were other things they wanted to do instead, or, or maybe they were frightened of meeting together. There are various reasons why people stop meeting together. But the same happens in our society. The love of many people for the Lord is a love that grows cold. Jesus warned his disciples and said, because of the abounding of sin, because of great sin and iniquity in society, the love of many will grow cold. But then he added this, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And this letter, if it's about anything, is about endurance. It's about keeping going. It's about carrying on. It's about remaining faithful to the one who is faithful. And I ask again, what do we do if we feel that we are not very faithful? Well, we have to start by saying none of us are faithful. If we are faithless, says Paul to Timothy, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The door of salvation is always open. The blood of Christ is always shed. The way to God is always clear. Here is the door, walk through it. Here is the Savior, ready to save you. Come to him. And maybe today you're thinking, but you don't know what state I'm in and how far I've gone from him and how far I feel from him and how I've, what depths I've sunk to and what a hypocrite I would be if I claimed to be a Christian. Well, what is a Christian? Do you remember the series on Mark's Gospel? We did it during the autumn and it began by those words of Jesus who said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And your necessary qualification for you to come to Jesus Christ is that you are a sinner who knows it. And who says, because I'm a sinner, nothing can cleanse my guilty conscience. Nothing can wash my evil conscience. Nothing can bring me back to God again. But only the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, whose name is holy, whose will is done on earth as in heaven. Come to us that we may come back to you. Renew us, restore us, receive us. Stir us up in our spirits to return to you, not because our hearts are clean of themselves, 
but because the only fountain that can make them clean is the blood of Jesus Christ. We come now to him. We come now through him. We pray for your rich, tender mercy to be showered upon us now. For Jesus' sake.